Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 10 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 10, we are looking at Excalibur number 10, Widget. That's right, the floating robot head that creates unpredictable interdimensional portals finally has an official name. The issue was originally published in July 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Marshall Rogers on pencils, Terry Austin on inks, Michael Heisler and Augustine Mass on lettering, and Terry Cavanaugh on on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. This issue is heavy on the Nazi version of Excalibur, officially known as Lightning Force. It's also light on Alan Davis, but please keep listening anyway. We've got a fun convo in store and a guest to help us walk through some of the very sticky ethical conflicts at the heart of it all. This issue also introduces a number of important plot points that are going to be very relevant to Excalibur's increasingly multi-dimensional story. I'll introduce our very exciting guest in a moment, but first, the usual introductions to the usual crew. I'm sure loyal listeners know us by now, but every podcast might be some Somebody's first, so here we go. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about superheroes and sometimes even get paid to do so. I mostly talk about gender and sexuality, but lots of other stuff as well. I'm the co-host of another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, and I am still not Kurt Wagner's official PR manager, but I get a little bit closer every day. Mav, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I do pretty much most of the stuff that Anna does, except for less Kurt Wagner stuff. I... (laughs) (laughs) Just slightly less. Slightly. Yeah. I study 20th century, 21st century pop culture, particularly in movies, television, and comics, and representations of sexuality, race, gender, and class in those things. So, you know, Excalibur is straight up my alley. Um, I also look at TV and professional wrestling and lots of fun, nerdy, geeky stuff like that. And I am one of the co-hosts of another podcast as well, uh, Vox Podcast, which looks at, rather than just looking at just Excalibur, we look at a different thing every week. So this is always kind of, I always love this one because I get to go more of a deep dive rather than trying to study everything. So I'm... Less excited today for the today's issue for reasons that Anna sort of hinted on oh, that I and then I let's usually not am. turn off the li- we have a fabulous fabulous <laughs> I have conversation coming up. Yes, I have we do have thoughts. many thoughts. It's a contentious <laughs> issue, and that yes. is going to keep people listening. Yeah. <laughs> 
Andrew, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, and um, I run a project called the Claremont Run, which does a bunch of social media stuff about the work of Chris Claremont. I love the way you undersell Claremont Run. Like, oh, we do a bunch of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We do. You do do a bunch of stuff, but I mean, it's just such a monumental undertaking and you do such a fabulous job. And I feel like there should be a lot more Stanley inspired superlatives <laughs> added to your description of what you do on Claremont Run. Such a very Canadian description. <laughs> like yeah. little, known, little known writer, maybe you've heard of him. I don't know. <laughs> So that voice you heard jumping in is our guest this week, which is Dr. Travis Smith. Hello, Travis. How you doing, Anna? We're doing okay. Travis is an associate professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal, where he teaches political theory. This term, he's mainly teaching John Locke and Alexis de Tocqueville. He is the author of Superhero Ethics, a fabulous book published by Templeton Press in 2018. And he's also written on the relationship between superhero comics and classical comedy and tragedy. The Rachel Summers-centric Uncanny 207 was the first comic book he ever bought off the racks with his own money. Oh, good choice. I love that. So you're going to have some Rachel thoughts then, presumably. Rachel is why I bought Excalibur while I was buying it. Aww. Yes, I have heard through the grapevine that you're not a particular fan of Excalibur, Travis. I know you're not new to the series, but you presaged your appearance by saying that, is it okay if I'm not as ecstatic about Excalibur as some of the other guests have been thus far? And of course I said that's okay. But before we get into our discussion, would you like to sort of qualify that a little bit? Like, what was it that sort of didn't hook you about Excalibur? Why didn't it become one of your kind of favorite series? Yeah, I'm I'm not anti. It just, I, I guess it wasn't, I, I wasn't the target audience. I was an ex-book guy growing up. I bought Excalibur through issue 17, so I gave it a good year and a half. And I think it just wasn't for me. I now told my store, Captain Quebec in downtown Montreal, to get me through issue 34 so I can at least finish the Claremont run on this book. But I think what it was was the kind of teenager I was. Whimsy didn't speak to me. I liked Silly. I remember really enjoying post-Crisis Justice League with Guy Gardner, One Punch, and the Blue and the Gold. But Whimsy, I think this book is more Whimsy than Silly. And and I guess it wasn't it wasn't for you. some kind of deficiency in my own soul, as it were, oh, that, no. that I, I didn't appreciate this. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I've really been enjoying following along the podcast and rereading the issues as we go. And as I said, I've, I'm looking forward to getting the rest of the run, at least the Claremont oh, yeah. run. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot either. Like every comic book series is not for everybody, right? There's so many series that I'm sure you love so much that just aren't really for me, right? And Excalibur, I think it's it's very defensible to not particularly like it. It's a weird series. <laughs> which I, like, I, I yeah. read back through 17 and I'm pretty sure I remember why I dropped the series. And I don't think you'll like this, Anna. I think it was Widget. <laughs> I think it was Widget made me drop the series. I did not get or like what widget was doing the gosh golly wow catchphrase uh i i had a sort of i had a kind of superboy prime that stupid attitude toward that and so it didn't speak to me but i've been enjoying going back to it now it's never occurred to me before just now that you know you can drop a comic book series are you telling me that you could just stop reading one because that would have changed my life i didn't know you could just stop (laughs) i didn't know that was allowed every time i've done that in my life it's been such a difficult decision i remember i was buying the dakin solo series like the one with wolverine's son when it first came out and i stopped buying it and it just it tore me up but it was definitely the right decision i remember around the same time when i decided to quit new mutants i decided to quit new mutants 
right before the first appearance of Cable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a horrible time to jump off the boat. No, I know, but in terms of a collector, the regret of, oh man, I wish I had that one in my box. Oh yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, first Deadpool. Anyway, we're getting really off topic really quickly. I think we will get into kind of our issue summary and come back to some of these contentious issues having to do with Excalibur. Although I will note that the gosh golly wow catchphrase in defense of it, since it is the name of our podcast, has kind of a very deep and dark roots in the history of the widget character, which we are not going to get to for so long on the podcast. Not for a long time. Anyway, we will get to some alternate universe doppelganger stuff today, obviously. So we'll do our issue summary and then we'll come back to some of these first impressions and get into the issue at hand. Oh, I'm not looking forward to reading this summary. I have to say Nazi so many times. (laughs) Excalibur number 10, Widget, opens in the Tower of London, where Captain Britain is fighting his evil doppelganger, Hauptmann England of Lightning Force, Excalibur's counterpart from Earth 597, where the Nazis won the war. Hauptmann England gets the better of Captain Britain, who's still weak from his American visit a couple of issues before and hampered by his wardrobe. He's still wearing the old, ill-fitting costume he stole from the museum in the previous issue. In the meantime, Reich Ministerin Moira McTaggart, aka Nazi Moira, for simplicity's sake, and her bodyguard Nazi Callisto take Alison Stewart hostage in the hopes of hijacking a plane. Captain Britain and Hauptmann England continue their fight. There's a whole lot of fighting in this issue. During one of the breaks in the action, Brian rescues a dinosaur child, a member of the dinosaur family we saw emerge in the 616 in the last issue. But Brian stopping to rescue the boy allows Nazi Shadow cat to phase him, disrupting his life energy in the process, something that's ill-defined but sounds very unpleasant. Nazi Nightcrawler then has his way with the captain, teleporting him into seeming unconsciousness, but when Hauptmann England attempts to finish him off, Brian breaks free and administers his own coup de grace. Nazi Megan then changes into regular Megan to deliver her own very satisfying punch to Nazi Nightcrawler's face, after which she captures Nazi Moira and Callisto. Before Nazi Shadowcat can use her powers on Megan, she's stopped by Phoenix, who wonders in a thought bubble why she doesn't have a lightning force counterpart. Interesting. Elsewhere, but close by, Kitty Pride wakes up in the arms of Alastair Stewart, who immediately becomes her new, very intense crush. While Kitty's trying to remember her own name, that old robot head appears and opens a portal. An Amazon woman on the other side of the portal tries to take possession of Alastair, but he's saved by Kitty, who phases him and then the robot to close the portal. Then, and this is important, Kitty refers to the robot as a widget. The thing finally has a name. Because it can't be all fighting all the time, we cut to a meeting! Excalibur, the police, and Weird Happenings Organization, and Lightning Force are meeting in the Great Hall of the Tower to decide what to do next. Lightning Force is holding the 616 versions of Moira and Callisto hostage, and Excalibur et al. want them back. While everyone's negotiating, Kitty confronts her doppelganger and discovers she's been turned into an actual demon. Kitty, proving why she's Excalibur's most identifiable character, would like to kill all the Nazis. Instead, she's escorted out by Rachel. Kitty, Rachel, and Kurt have a chat on the roof about ethics and morals in and around the decision to send Lightning Force back to their own dimension in exchange for Moira and Callisto. While Kitty and Rachel are flying home together, Sat Er 9, still and forevermore disguised as Courtney Ross watches them with evil steeped fingers. So, <sighs> Lightning Force and Marshall Rogers. So, Marshall Rogers is certainly not an unskilled artist among his claims to fame as a run on Detective Comics in 1977 with writer Steve Englehart that's still remembered very fondly and is credited as a central inspiration for the 89 Batman film. But here, in this book, I would definitely argue he's not a great fill-in for Davis. Um, we complained about Ron Lim a couple of issues ago, but I think Rogers is maybe even more tonally inconsistent than Davis, um, which is unfortunate because I think this issue could have really benefited from
from Davis in terms of the action sequences and the character work. So that's part of my first impression. But um, let's start with some first impressions from the rest of the team, perhaps starting with Travis. Focusing your critical eye on this particular issue, what were your some of your immediate takeaways, things that stood out to you upon rereading this issue? Right. I tried to put myself back into sort of my childhood in the 1980s when reading this, because I think, I don't know, post Schindler's List or something, we read Nazis and pop culture different now than we did then. And I'm not saying that to say it was better in the good old days or something like that. But, you know, back then, the idea of silly Nazis was a thing as a foil or as something that appeared in dark comedy sketches, you know, going back to uh, Hogan's Heroes, right? For your sake, Clink, you know, that kind of thing. And Mel Brooks movies, right, where you get the sort of uh, the humor that comes out of commiseration. And Monty Python, right, which I know that Chris Claremont draws on in sort of side gags here and there, like the I Feel Happy guy in a couple issues. And and so here we have silly Nazis, and the silliness is proven, I think, by the matching swastika headbands on Captain Britain and Megan's doppelgangers. And so it, I was reading it sort of in that light that you know it was still you know it, it was it was just part of the post-war coping mechanism that started with sort of like American 1950s popular culture where they went deliberately light or satirical on very serious and dark subjects. And I think this is part of the legacy there. Uh, of that. And so I think I told you, Anna, I, my, my name for these villains, um, because they're they're Nazi Excalibur, which is to say they're not Excalibur. So I've personally been calling them not Scalibur the whole time. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I got, I got plenty to say about them, but that was sort of how I had to sort of, in my own imagination, situate them in order to get what I think Chris Claremont was trying to do with this. There's also part of me that says that going to the Nazis is kind of lazy storytelling in the sense that it's always the case that Nazis can just be a stand-in for the greatest evil. So you don't even have to give reasons or backstories or explanations in order to tell you more about why these people are the villains. It's just sort of an automatic and, I think, cheap way of, you know, what would you say in wrestling, right? Just cheap heat to get Nazi villains. And so I'm, I'm not impressed with the, the them as a go-to, but I can sort of understand them as, you know, being in the sort of, you know, what I said before, whimsical fe feeling of Excalibur that you could have silly Nazis as villains. Yeah, I want to get into that possibility of them being silly because I think personally one of my primary issues with them is that they're kind of not very silly. Like, I mean, I think about this issue and then the, the floppy of this issue, the original copy has like a pinup of them on the back mm -hmm. and i'm like what am mm -hmm. i supposed to do with this pinup am i supposed to be putting this on my wall <laughs> Like, what is the point here? I'm supposed to be putting this pinup of like these sexy, powerful Nazis with demonized Kitty Pride on my wall. No, but that it's, the, it, it's so clearly weird. ironic then, right? Because nobody, nobody's putting that on their wall. <laughs> and yet the pinup is there, right? Anyway, we're going to get into it. Let's start with some other first impressions. I, I've, I've heard you just being like, uh, Mavs, <laughs> if you want to jump in. Uh, yeah, well, I, I do not disagree with almost anything Travis said. Yeah. For me, a lot of this comes down to Marshall Rogers. And it's weird because I, I liked Rogers a lot. Uh, he died in 2007. So back then I liked him a lot. And he was, um, just for some backstory on him, he was trained in architecture and in mechanical design before he became a comic artist. So he is actually a really, really good artist. He, he has this deceptively, I'm not talking about this book, but 
in general, he has a deceptively intricate style that had a lot of detail for otherwise cartoony work. And that really set him apart from what was, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was called the Mighty Marvel style, but it was from the Marvel House style. And it set him apart in a different way than the up and coming who would become the image artist were at that time. So when he does this fill-in issue uh, or these fill-in issues, because he he does next month's too or next week's too, he was in the midst of doing uh, or he actually he had just finished this run on Silver Surfer, the 1987 Silver Surfer comic, which I love. I love so much that like today when I imagine Silver Surfer, his artwork is what I see in my head. And so like I like he's really even more so than Kirby. For me, Marshall Rogers is the definitive Silver Surfer artist. Marshall Rogers with Joe Rubenstein inks. That said, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I do not like his artwork here at all. Um, There's a lot of reasons. I don't think Terry Austin, who arguably is the most talented inker of that era. I don't think he's doing rogers any favors here there's no variation in line work everything seems flat everything seems rushed i feel like probably there was a a deadline issue especially since davis did the first half of the story he did last week's comic and then suddenly you have rogers and and austin on this as though to say we need this out you know in a week and a half who's free and it felt real rushed it feels really flat things are confusingly rendered all of the stuff that rogers is famous for his you know his intricate artwork he spent a year at this point drawing kirby tech for galactus and then you see like the widget portal and it's just some squiggly lines and maybe a circle here or there. It just does not feel like him. It does not feel like Davis. It feels very out of place in a story that sort of needs Davis's humor and storytelling ability in order to like make the story work, especially for, you know, we're working with Nazis here. We're working in, it's not a fill-in issue like most classic fill-in issues um, from this time period are just, here's a story that Spider-Man does that's not part of the greater narrative. And it could have happened whenever, but, you know, we, we needed to put it somewhere so take it away ron friends you know that we they did that a lot at this point in the 80s this is in the middle of a storyline it feels out of place the story is clearly written for davis andrew you've said a lot of times that one of claremont's biggest gifts as a writer is that he very much keeps his artist in mind so when he's writing the x-men for john byrne or paul smith it's this personal drama thing between them and then when he's writing it for jim lee now we've got this paramilitary outfit like this this feels like a story that was written for davis and then marshall rogers just is not alan davis i'm glad you brought up some of rogers biography yeah because i wanted to mention that because this is the brutality of like monthly comics right like presumably he was hired to do this as a fill-in issue and this isn't a good representation of his talents at all if i may i'm looking at the cover and the more i look at it the more the more wonky uh, Hauptman England's left arm is. It's just anatomically wrong. Then I look at it again, I realize, oh, that's because he's drawn the entire body as a low-key swastika or three-quarter swastika. So that's why it's so badly out of place. Mm-hmm. There's proportion problems all throughout this. Rachel looks really weird in every panel that she appears in here. It's an odd book. And like I said, I, I'm being hard on him, but he was one of my favorite artists at the time. I was reading him religiously. <laughs> so so it was just bizarre when I when I picked this up. Yeah, the flatness that you mentioned really comes across to me for sure. Um, Andrew, first impressions? I completely agree with what Mav is saying. I think something was happening behind the scenes. I think we saw it with the limb issue two issues earlier. I, I agree. Rogers is a fantastic penciler and he did not show up here. I would just add that the layouts are especially bad in my mind. 
Now, outside of that, the thing that I would say is just to flatter our guest, I'm really happy Travis is here because the issues that surface at the end of this text are um, sort of implicit moral exploration. And if anyone's read Travis's book, Superhero Ethics, it's extraordinarily good at drawing out the implicit ethical implications of superhero comics like no book ever has. Uh, and I, I kind of just want to like point to the end and say, what's happening here? Because like when I read this issue, my immediate reaction is I should email Travis. <laughs> so so th this is smooth for me. Well, yeah, that was exactly why we wanted Travis to come on the pod today. This was going to be an ethically fraught issue, and I very much wanted his voice on it. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of it when Anna emailed me and said, we think you'd be perfect for the Nazi episode <laughs> <laughs> on, on April Fool's Day. I'm like, this has to be a prank. <laughs> Unfortunately not. This is a comic that exists. Um, I want to get to that ending for sure. And I wanted to get into sort of a deeper discussion about the ethics of portraying Nazis in comics in general and in this comic in particular. And I think that will get us back to some of our, some of our issues with the art actually, because that's going to be intertwined with, I think the ethics of representation here. But before we do that, I actually do want to talk about the art a little bit more, at least in terms of what do we do when we have such a dramatic shift in a serialized comic like this? And I was curious about how each of you kind of process that when you are reading a beloved book, or at least a book that it had a certain style and then you have to reckon with this huge tonal shift because it's strange being a reader of serialized comics and having to reckon with all those kinds of shifts like whether it's sort of a shift in writer whether it's a shift in characterization or I think the most jarring for me is usually a shift in art and I was wondering again like how when you think about a series like this do you apply less canonicity to issues that aren't drawn in the style that you prefer like how do you kind of integrate a story like this into the whole of Excalibur does this count for you as a less official issue of Excalibur because of some of these issues that we've been discussing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> is that something is that something that you do with other comics as well? Like does the art style sort of affect your opinion of canonicity? We we've talked about it before. Like Excalibur was built for Alan Davis. That was part of its creation. When he's not there, it's not the same. And he's such an auteur that you really can't sub him. Now the traditional logic with a fill-in artist is bring someone in to give the artist a break, have them do an arc, and then you come back to the artist. The more recent logic is take a month off. Let the penciler have a month and then we'll we'll get the issue out a month later. We're not doing either of those things. This is panic button penciling. Uh, and it's 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 really problematic for me. That's such a great way of putting it. Panic, but but I like that. But part of it's also because so much is fight scene, and so I'm, I've become such a character and dialogue person that fight scenes bore me. Um, and you know that's why blockbuster movies, if there's a big fight scene at you know the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie, I've become the old man that falls asleep during those movies now. <laughs> but as a wrestling fan, a good fight should tell a story. And yeah, I was and, just going to say that, Travis. And this is just a slugfest, as far as I can tell. And so I, I was flipping through the pages pretty fast. And then he's got this Hulk Hogan, John Cena splash page Superman comeback at the end. And it's, it's like, after all that fighting, this is, it's one of those fights. And yeah, but again, on the subject of, you know, it is definitely the case. I've learned that different artists make you read books differently. I think about just a big two artists that have worked with Brian Bendis, for example. I learned when I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man and Bagley was drawing it, that you had to really pay attention to the art because Bagley put you know, implicit lines in the art across the panels from page to page even. The, the, the composition of the pages was brilliant. You would realize that something in the top left corner was looking at something in the bottom right corner, even though it was you know, 10, 12 panels away. And then I think about instead uh, John Romita Jr. on action with 
Bendis lately, and it's he's become a satire of himself. I mean, every character that John Romita Jr. draws right now looks like an artist's mannequin in the stiffest possible pose, no matter how much the action is supposed to be dynamic. And it's and I just you know I didn't read those books as closely because I just wanted to get through the painful art. Yeah, I wonder with John Romita Jr. whether he just can't keep up with the pace of sort of monthly publishing right now because he's able to do interesting splash pages and stuff when he seems to have time. But yeah, his style has definitely, in terms of monthly comics, fallen off a cliff a little bit. Yeah, he reminds me of Howard Chaykin, where every issue that Howard Chaykin draws is a satire of a Howard Chaykin book. Oh. <laughs> and there are other issues with chicken too so yeah I don't, let's 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 we've got enough ethical problems to deal with yeah. so let's leave him on the side I, you know. let's go I want to follow up on something Travis said here I mean, so moving into you know one of my other areas of expertise with wrestling what you said was exactly right if you have a good fight fight choreography be it in a movie in a comic book or in a wrestling ring in wrestling we, we would call it ring psychology in a movie we call it fight choreography just layouts in, in a comic um the storyline that is told by a well-scripted fight matter so a, a good example the simplest example i can think of is in professional wrestling one of the greatest wrestlers of all time rick flair rick flair's finishing move is the figure four leg lock it's supposed to be a submission move it's supposed to make you give up because your leg is in so much pain and in order to make that work much of rick flair's offense during a classic match is he is punishing your leg and tiring your your leg out as much as possible so that when he when he finally locks that move in you know you're hurt more so it makes sense that you give up it is a storyline to the fight in this story it's hopkman england and captain britain punching each other relentlessly for several pages and then megan shows up out of nowhere and this bugs me to no end because the last time we saw megan was last issue when she and brian were like okay we know we're not supposed to be in the fight but we're we're gonna go be in the fight and then this storyline starts out with them saying all members of X-Collar were have been taken out except for Brian. And just as a reader, I'm going, no, they weren't. Megan should be standing outside. Where is she at? So then she shows up at the end of the fight as though we had just forget, forgotten to write about her for, for 10 pages. Like, there is no point in which she takes over or beats Nazi Megan. We don't know what happened to Nazi Megan. Where is she hanging out when Megan is impersonating her? Why? Nothing about that fight about that makes sense other than, surprise, it's good Megan all along. And I why and then there's things like um there's little details just again the art the rushed artwork is the same with you know characters move from place to place and you don't know how they got there kitty rips the sleeve on her on her shirt and then sometimes it's okay <laughs> some sometimes it's not it just it just varies from panel to panel and i mean andrew you said panic button artwork i i think that's what it was no one had the time to flip back a page and see what we've done and after megan does her out of nowhere then you get rachel appearing to end the fight as the day <laughs> day as machina and Where was she? Know, i know but she's there to win and and this is a problem i have with with rachel in this book is it's kind of like superman and the whedon cut of justice league is that there's no need for any of the heroes because rachel can take care of everything so why does anybody even have any altercations with anybody else just you know rachel stands there and fights over so we've talked in some previous podcasts about some of the ways that the series kind of tries to handle rachel's power and unfortunately because there are negative gender connotations of this one of the ways she gets taken on the board is through emotional instability and but that's often a way that you take psychics off the board and <laughs> somebody with the power of rachel 
Rachel, who's got uh, telekinetics and psychics, and the Phoenix Force is especially problematic that way. But uh, but time. yeah, it's definitely a problem with Rachel. Last issue, she got punched once, and then the issue was over, and then yeah. she just doesn't show up till half. Uh, I mean, Hoffman England punched her last issue, and then that was, and then we ran out of pages, and then now she's just not around for some reason. It's sloppy. Well, that gets us back to fight choreography being mm-hmm. sloppy, right? Because the added component of fight choreography in a superhero comic is that you have to reckon with the superpowers and superpowers are magic they make no sense and yet you have to build an internal logic of superpowers into a story in order for readers to kind of buy the story right and i think about superhero comics as a body genre i think so much of the story happens through the interactions with bodies and it is something that i centrally love about the genre i mean i love the conversations and the interpersonal dynamics and all of those things as well but if i was only looking for those things i would be reading a different genre of comics right i'm here for the superpowers i'm here for the fights i'm here for all of it and it is really disappointing when you have an issue like this that depends on a story being told through a fight. I mean, this is a story about Brian reckoning with his own damaged heroism that he's been reckoning with throughout the series, right? And doing that by facing a Nazi counterpart could be meaningful. It's his hero moment, right? To be this representation of good and glorious England against the ultimate foe of England, right? Mm -hmm. And yet you get so much telling instead of showing in this fight because we have all these thought bubbles of Brian sort of describing what he's going through and yet you don't get that pathos in the art like you don't get what I can imagine it would be if Davis was drawing it you know like really intimate views of kind of him suffering and sort of I can imagine the facial expressions that he might have and stuff that would sort of sell the psychology of this fight a lot more effectively and we're just again we're just not getting that here right there is an older literary theory that kind of accounts for fight mechanics called Aristia I don't know if anyone's familiar with that no I am not so please tell us about it okay so it just means the chronicle of great deeds um, it's the sequence in the Iliad where Diomedes just starts stabbing people uh, or later where Achilles just starts stabbing everyone in the throat and it goes on for a really, really long time. So the point is that these scenes of like action spectacle, they actually are not, you know, just um, escapism. They have purpose in the story. Coming back to what Mav was saying about wrestling mechanics, um, it's believed to be connected to narrative tension specifically uh, and that this is sort of the release valve of all the narrative tension that you've built up and this is the water cooler moment that everyone's going to be talking about the next day. And this fight, I don't feel it in in part because of the art uh, and in part because I'm still mad at Brian quite frankly and I I like the idea of a Nazi guy punching him (laughs) yeah I mean it's a lot for Brian to just have a sudden turnaround to heroism and you know when we talked about it being a cheap ploy it's like of course I'm going to root for Brian in the fight against this freaking Nazi but that doesn't mean Brian is a good person exactly like you've given him the worst possible evil as Travis was saying uh, in cultural consciousness yet at the Um, same time I know we're going to we're going to be talking about them as doppelgangers and Brian has still been depicted as kind of like your dumb jock, you know, the guy who was the goon on the hockey rink or something like that. And he's grown up and he's got superpowers now. So he gets to be the super version of the dumb jock goon. And so when we're, you know, teenage nerdy kids reading comic books and we're not that person, we're inclined to believe that, of course, that person's the kind of jerk that would have been a Nazi with a buzz cut if they had been in that regime at that time. And so of all the characters, you know, Nazi Brian is the one that sort of flatters the reader the most into thinking, well, if this is the one that sort of just, you know, the 
the flip side, the the mirror version of the same same guy, just in a slightly modified costume. And of course, we root for non-Nazi Brian, but we also kind of think that among the various comparisons among the doppelgangers, they're the closest ones. Nazi Brian and six one six Brian are uh, they're they're not that distinct. They're the least distinct of all of the pairings. Well, that I'm glad you brought that up, Travis, because that does get me into a question about doppelgangers that I wanted to ask all of you guys. So when we have doppelgangers in a story or AU counterparts, as we often see in superhero comics, they're usually that. It usually serves a purpose of the same way that villains do, right? In terms of you're using that character to illustrate something about the opposite character, right? I mean, you bring in an evil doppelganger to get to the heart of what makes a hero a hero. And doppelganger can be particularly effective that way since you have that uncanny sameness as well. So you have to reckon with what are the elements of sameness and difference that are setting these characters apart. And I think you're absolutely right, Travis, that in terms of Brian, there is a lot of potential there to compare, you know, him as a nationalist figure, you know, him as a hyper-aggressive figure, him as an imperious figure in some ways. I mean, that's maybe not quite the right word for Brian, but still, I think there's potential there in this comparison with his Nazi counterpart. And yet I'm questioning what the other counterparts are doing for us in terms of comparison. I particularly have issues with Nazi Nightcrawler and like what the heck that is supposed to be telling us about Nightcrawler to have them be a Nazi counterpart of him. We're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) We're going to get into that a little bit more in the next issue when we do see a little bit of interaction with Kurt and his doppelganger, which is interesting and deeply problematic. Um, we'll keep you in suspense for that. But um, but yeah, what is usually the function of doppelgangers in that in the story? And do we see some of that function being mobilized here? Can I ask a prefacing question? When does of this course. trend really start in superhero comics for you guys? It's huge now. Oh. Squadron Supreme. Okay. Oh, before, well, for well, me. I mean, Bizarro, though, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, you know, way back, when, very much beginning of Silver Age, when you start having Earth 1, Earth 2, Justice League, Justice Society, look, there are two supermen there are two you know i mean flash was at least a different character flash and green lantern but once dc opens up the world and says look our heroes existed in several different eras and that's a thing i don't know that it's always very interesting so much as like earth one and earth two superman were just one of these guys is old you know whereas eventually you start getting to stuff like ultraman you know what would superman have been like if he were a villain and then you get into the you start getting else worlds and what if comics and stuff where it's like you know batman Man, but what if he found the Green Lantern ring? And I think yeah. that, that you do care about this because it, it gives you a chance to start having thought experiments. What if Superman was Batman? I want to be able to say, what if all of our favorite superheroes were Nazis? And I think that if this were a better comic, it would have worked, right? What this is trying to do for American audiences who have not read the Captain Britain run yet at this point, we need to introduce the idea of a Captain Britain core. We need people to know that there is a Brian in every reality who is always charged with the same function of defending the realm, and the realm in Nazi world is the Nazi realm because it would have to be, but all of that is lost, right? Like it will make this will make more sense once the cross time caper gets started but we're four or five months away from that right now it just seems weird it it just seems weird and off-putting because look there's a nazi guy here and i don't know why and even more so for me the one that's really uncomfortable is the kitty doppelganger because that's a really deep and interesting story that has no place in this funny book because yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's just totally not there like i get what they're going for look this is a dark world where you know claremont wrote days of future past 
podcast. And Rachel tries to have that conversation here at the very end of this book. Yeah. And so this is a dark world where, you know, look, the bad guys won and we have to deal with what does it mean to be a Jew and a mutant in a world run by Nazis? And that would be really good in a serious, I, mean, I don't know about good, but it, at least it'd be interesting in a serious book. But, you know, we don't have that here. We have these dinosaur people running around and it just is so tonally weird that I don't know what to do with it. And it was just confusing to read and it's baffling. That, that's why I don't like this particular issue. It's just so much of it is baffling. I don't know how much of it is just rush job like you know i'm willing to hand wave a lot of it away uh you know davis was busy and behind and the issue had to be out because comics weren't allowed to be late yet in the 80s that's part of it on the other part i just think clearly decisions were made here that were not like on the page were just not the right decisions on the subject of the british series i thought it was funny that they have this two-page digression to deal with the dinosaur lad and it's really obviously just so they can tuck the footnote in there that tells you to go buy the captain britain trade paperback (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's mentioned and, in the and letters no page that. as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just like, it's so hard because, yeah, the kitty thing, I agree, it is too dark for this book. And this book has gone to dark places in the past. But if you're going to go dark, there's an ethics involved there. Like, you need to be able to give that story space to breathe. And I am glad that Kitty has the strong reaction that she does and that that strong reaction is given to her. I have just a lot of issues with the Nazi Nightcrawler thing. I mean, in the 616 universe he's raised by you know a romani family right so the idea that he would be joining the nazis and not a similar target of the nazis is a story choice that i don't really understand and also we can't overlook the fact that kurt being a german character in a british context comic as a hero during this time was very unusual right and to just have let's have the german character be a nazi after all it's just like oh it's lazy in a way that is borderline irresponsible to me and i mean especially in terms of the identity of that character being what it is that he's this character who's all about acceptance who's like all about you know being the outsider within outsiders and then to have him just be like of course he's german so he's a nazi it's like oh boy that is not doing anything interesting it didn't have to be like that like so what they're doing the good example of this is man in the high castle philip J. Yeah, yeah that's the story they want to tell and that is an intricate world where yes in 616 world kurt would have been an outsider but but Nazi Kurt didn't grow up in the 616 world. Nazi Kurt grew up in a world where before he was born, the Nazis had already won. So in that world, yes. Well, yeah, we got the sliding have... time scale problem here too, right? right where you right. know, so yeah. There's a way to make this a good story, but you can't just hand wave it away. You have to tell that story. And this story does not. It just takes like it takes so much for granted that like, oh, well, if we call them Nazis, people will be able to fill in the shorthand of Nazi bad. And that's all the work we have to do. And you're right. It's lazy. I think you can do the interesting exploration of again. I understand why someone might be turned off by the idea of reading A Man in the High Castle or watching the TV show that's out now. But if you want to take it as a serious study, it can be done. Weird World 3, which is a book that we'll talk about eventually, does a better job of it. It's also not my favorite Excalibur, but it does a better job because it's at least thinking through the issues. Whether they're the choices I would have made or not is a different question. But this just ignores them. It ignores all the work that needs to be done, and that makes it lazy and bad. And yet, this is a bit trying, you can clearly see, right? Because when I mean, we have the 
Alan Moore elements brought into Excalibur. Obviously, it's based on a lot of his work. And, you know, he was doing certain things with Saturnine and her world in terms of a critique of fascism that was very having to do with things that were going on in British politics and all of those things. Me being very generous, I can see them reaching for that here. But like, again, just if you're going to tell that story, we need to see the society that this is built on. We need to see the status of mutants in this world, right? Because I mean, a version of Nazi Nightcrawler, I could buy into that as a story if it's like, okay, well, he's got this conflicted status in which he's reaching for power in this world. And this is a way that he can achieve power, but he's never really going to be equal because he's still treated as a monster and like everything. And that's a story that you could tell if you brought an interesting psychology yeah. to that character. You just wrote this a better is, story. Is, yeah, this is not that story. Yeah, I'm <laughs> no. not writing that fan fiction. I'm not writing Nazi fan well, fiction. But, you, but the, point, the point is, with 30 seconds worth of thought, you wrote a better story. Like, yeah. and I think with 30 seconds worth of thought, I wrote a better story. And it just feels like no one sat down to think about it. They went and said, Nazis are bad. People will get it. And that sucks. <laughs> it's just not good. I, I was just going to say, I was really disappointed in the fact that even, you know, when, when Nazi Kurt talks, he says things like impossible. I'm, I'm like, no, you mean unglaublich. Yeah. <laughs> He's not even a very good German. Yeah, well, I <laughs> Stereotype. mean, Kurt's, Which is Kurt's ability Kurt to speak German say. is, yeah, I know that too, though, yeah. I know, like this, so much of this episode is inevitably going to be about Nazis. Cause I think it's an important issue and it's going to come up in so many subsequent issues that I think we have to reckon with it as much as possible. But I almost want to ask a question that is similar to the question that we asked about some of the race code switching that happened back in Excalibur's New York Adventure, which we talked about a little while ago. Like, is it possible to do, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit already. Like, I mean, that it's possible to do this Nazi story in a responsible way, but like, what are sort of the terms of doing that responsibly? And I want to kind of get into that a little bit more in terms of the superhero genre because if the superhero genre is inherently about kind of celebrating beautiful bodies and excess and all of these things i mean i brought up the nazi pinup on the back of this issue right is this a genre that is capable of handling these things well and obviously representing nazis has a very long history in superhero comics nazis are some of the original supervillains in superhero comics and yet i do think it's always a difficult place to handle some of those stories and i mean we think about another thing that was happening concurrently when this issue would have been coming out was Art Spiegel and Mouse was coming out, right? Yes. We were just like a little bit away from having the collected edition of Volume 2 of Mouse. Volume 1 had already come out a couple of years previous to that, and it had been serialized starting in 1980. And one of the things that surprised people so much about Mouse was that it was reckoning with the most serious of serious topics, which is in 20th century culture often considered to be World War II and the Holocaust, at least for Western audiences. And it was such a surprise to readers that he could use the comic book medium to reckon with those things responsibly with depth, like with astounding depth, right? And the reason that people were so surprised about that is partly because of comics like this, right? <laughs> that like we see the handling of Nazis in something like a superhero comic. So I mean, I'm just wondering, like, is there a way for Nazis to be sort of like ethical in a superhero genre where we're always going to be inherently kind of reducing things, where we're always going to be kind of exploiting bodies, where we're always going to be kind of investing in beautiful bodies, which the superhero genre has been criticized for a long, long time for having fascist sort of implications on its own, like in terms of superheroes having fascist implications. So like, what are we kind of dealing with here in terms of the inherent ethics of representing Nazis in this genre, in this space? And I guess I would have added in my 
my list of pop culture, post-war pop culture subversions of Nazis or rendering rendering them silly or satirical in some way. I forgot to mention the way in which it's done in camp or burlesque or vaudeville as well, which really is about their uh, their fashion and their physicality. And so th- this is another part of in which, you know, uh, in Western culture after the war, there's an, an appropriation of the Nazi look in order to repurpose it or subvert it in some fashion. And yet there are many, many problematic supposed subversions of sort of Nazi imagery, right, in pop culture. I mean, whether we're going to talk about fashion, taking inspiration from Nazi imagery, which can do a lot of different things. Perhaps it can do good things. It can do a lot of negative things, too. Mm -hmm. Prominent fashion designers have been fired for expressing, you know, in recent memory, been fired for expressing their admiration of Nazi aesthetics. And I mean, aesthetics were a big part of the Nazi brand, a big part of the appeal of that brand. And we see that very much here in the design of a character like Nazi Moyer, right, with her enormous leopard skin coat which is a fabulous coat and yet what is the presence of that coat doing for me right am i supposed to be attracted to this character am i supposed to want to wear that coat you know it brings up a lot of moral dilemmas and then if we think about i mean another way that people have sort of reckoned with nazis is through a very problematic one like nazi sexploitation films for instance right Mm -hmm. which that's not really what we're getting here but so what i'm talking about when i'm talking about that is you know sort of pornography and exploitation films that use Nazi imagery and Nazi situations, often concentration camp imagery and um, exploitation within that context. This is a whole genre of films. You are welcome to look that up if you want to, if you want to research that. Um, Don't. Don't Google (laughs) it. Just just trust I'll just enjoy my weekend instead. Yes, please do. Please do. But it is a thing that exists and is a popular sub-sub-genre in in certain sectors. And it can do different things. Sometimes Nazis are used in comedical ways, but I mean, Nazis and pornography is inherently ethically fraught for obvious reasons. And yet I would argue in a superhero comic, again, we're investing in sort of fantastic bodies and sort of the aesthetics of Nazi Excalibur here. Like, I do think that there's a goofiness to them. I also think we're supposed to be impressed by them. I mean, time was put into designing these costumes and wanting us to look at these characters and get a certain reaction to looking at these characters. And I don't sort of have a final word on it, but I was interested about your thoughts about it in terms of, is that inherently ethically problematic to have us investing in these characters as beautiful displays? I think I can make the charitable attempt at defense here. Okay, so for me, the big thing with Nazis when they're used as a um, pop culture symbol of evil is that it's to placate the broader implications of the Nazi philosophy, the idea that any of us in the right situation could go along with a sort of nationalist socialist bent. And in a comic book called Excalibur, which is very nationalistic of Britain for obvious reasons, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. So having your British nationalist heroes, the defenders of Camelot and London and all that stuff, look at themselves as could have just as easily been part of the Third Reich. I think that actually does kind of confront the idea that it's not the Nazis you should be afraid of. It's the human tendencies that allowed the Nazis to exist, and those tendencies are universal. Yeah, can I follow up there in that vein? When I look at doppelganger characters, I ask, you know, is the version of them that were presented as an alternate universe version in some way compatible with, consistent with the ethical core of that character? Uh, or does it it, you know, vary so widely, or does it uh, diverge too strongly from it that they're not really recognizable as a version of that character? And I actually reread Volume Four of Captain America issues seventeen 
to 20, where they also have a Captain America wakes up in a world where the Nazis have conquered America. And of course, you know, in very comic book style, you know, uh, Bruce Banner is actually still a good guy, even though you might well imagine he could have just been a lab lackey in a Nazi uh, bomb experiment if he had been raised there. Tony Stark seems to be working for the Nazis, but he's actually a double agent for the good guys, even though, of course, Tony Stark, who, and I point out in my book, his name Anthony Stark sounds like he's actually the love child of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Stark. Stark would be, of course, a Nazi technologist, but we have to make sure that Tony Stark's a good guy, so they make him into a good guy, even though it's totally believable that that technologist would be on the wrong side there if he were raised in it and rewarded by it and cultivated by it. Because totalitarian governments really love to get their hands into smart and spirited people. These are the people that, above all else, are going to be most elevated, most rewarded, most recruited by and turn into the heroes of, of their kind of, and this is any kind of totalitarian nation. They grab the smart and the spirited people and they put them to work. And so when we look at the various kinds of characters that Excalibur here works with, I mean, Nazi Megan is as much of a cipher as 616 Megan has been so far. Even her powers make her a cipher so far, mm-hmm. at least in the story. So that hasn't changed. I don't want to say much about uh, Nazi Nightcrawler because I know that that's going to come up in issue 11. But I, but right, I'm, I'm somebody who really, really hates being tickled too. So <laughs> um, that epiphany that uh, Nightcrawler has in 11 is significant. But the kitty one, I think, is the really interesting question. You know, Rachel says, how come there isn't one of me, right? And someone says, there's not, there's everyone, but there's no Rachel. And in a sense, it makes sense there's no Rachel because there's no days or futures past uh, future in this alternate universe because there'd be no American senator that would have, you know, made the Sentinels, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes sense there's, you know, but then, then if you push it like with every time travel or alternate universe story, why then are Nazi Kurt and Kitty hanging out with Nazi Brian and Megan because they wouldn't have the same backstory that put them together in the prestige format special edition either here. So, you know, you have to suspend disbelief. Um, but we don't, in a sense, we don't need Rachel or a doppelganger of Rachel because Kitty here is the doppelganger of Rachel, which I think they get to in the discussion at the end, sort of, where Rachel says, I was a hound, and so it's not that far off from what they're making your doppelganger be like or do there. But here's the thing, and I don't know how much hate I'll get for saying this. I've never been a Kitty Pride fan. As a youth, it was because I already detected that she was too much of what we call a Mary Sue. She's too smart. She's too omni-capable. She's too conscientious. She's got too much integrity. She speaks her mind like we the readers want her to. And she doesn't really have any sort of serious character flaws yet in her depiction. And, and what do they do with the Nazi doppelganger version of Kitty? They have to make sure it's not really Kitty They have to make sure it's a demon-possessing alternate universe kitty, which is a way of, you know, it's cheap. It's a way of preserving the integrity of the kitty character so that she's never contaminated by uh, by any kind of moral impurity so that, you know, kitty can get angry at what did the Nazis do to the version of me? Well, if they really wanted to have a, you know, we talk about, could they have done a a deeper version of this kind of story? What would have been harder to deal with is if she was just another living version of Kitty who, as totalitarian governments will do, will use carrots and sticks, incentives and disincentives, special privileges or threats 
in order to force people to do their will. The Nazis recruited non-Germans, and uh, not recruited, that's the wrong word, effectively enslaved non-Germans and sent them to the front lines to fight their battles for them uh, while, you know, holding their loved ones ransom, as it were. And so if, if they would instead have had, oh, it's, you know, not really Kitty, not, not alternate universe Kitty's fault because she's as pure pro- probably as she was, but they had to use their occult powers to make her a demon in order to turn her. Um, it would have been much more heart-wrenching if it had instead been the case that some combination of special privileges or threats made it so that she had no choice but to, you know, become this. I mean, the most disturbing thing in this comic is the obvious sort of concentration camp physique and gaunt face that they give her. That's really, that's really uh, problematic. Which is, included, which is included in that pinup. No, it's, hor- it's horrific. Oh. It's absolutely horrific. And then, however, you get, I mean, the most important line of dialogue in the entire issue to me is when Nazi Moira claims that 616 Kitty is in some ways just as demonic as the demon Kitty Shadowcat from the alternate universe. And that leads to this discussion in the end of the book where you are forced to confront with when you have the very smart, very spirited, very competent, very idealistic very righteous, very confident in her righteousness and inflexible in her righteousness person like Kitty is, which are all the reasons we're supposed to love her since her first appearances in UXM, that this is the kind of person who in revolutionary or totalitarian conditions is easy pickings for the leaders of those movements to find to, as the Buffy line always like, give me an axe and point me in the right direction. And that kind of personality under other circumstances of that revolutionary totalitarian education has that kind of fire that can turn into something quite dangerous unleashed upon the world in the name of righteousness, in the name of purity. The Nazis thought they were about purity. They they thought they were the noble ones, horrible as that is. And so I'm not, please understand, Andrew and Anna have read my book, so hopefully you understand when, when I try to describe what I think I'm seeing, I'm not endorsing we can then continue the conversation of how horribly problematic all of this is but that's how i that's that's the message i think claremont was trying to communicate through this racialized demon version of alternate universe kitty trying to say to get the reaction that you get at a kitty that you get at the end that is in its own ways while she is entirely right in a certain sense it's also that kind of entirely right uh, that in other circumstances can be very precarious or dangerous i mean what i think is interesting but also once again problematic about that conclusion is the way you have this conversation between kitty and rachel and kurt as well in which they're comparing moralities and approaches to this ethical dilemma and yet rachel and kurt have experienced fantastical outsiderness right fantastical persecution their persecution is not grounded in real world events even though rachel's trauma is very much a holocaust metaphor and all of these things it is a metaphor whereas kitty is a representative of a group of people that endured an actual holocaust they're all fictional characters and yet you see this reckoning with the difference between drawing on a real historical event versus having fantasy events that sort of mimic different kinds of persecution and i don't know how i feel about that like i think it makes sense to give kitty the moral high ground because of her anchoring in reality and yet i just i don't really know how i feel about that conclusion i think 
as we've all been complaining about, there's just complexities there that are sort of like scratching at our consciousness that are just not really teased out. But I was wondering about your kind of everybody else's thoughts about the juxtaposition between the fantastical prejudice experienced by Nightcrawler and Rachel juxtaposed kitties and how that plays out in this final scene. For me, I think that answer is, and we touched a bit a little bit with Brian, but I think even more so with Megan, I think they're the answer to that question, right? Like Travis, your big point at the beginning was you sort of, you get how Brian in Nazi world made this choice, right? Like everything we know about Brian says, yeah, in Nazi world, of course you would have become a Nazi, obviously, right? And I think um, probably mentioned, I think I mentioned it briefly last week. I, I think that the Megan costume that Davis designed it, but you know, in last issue, but the Megan costume, but for the Nazi imagery is actually a really great superhero costume design that they've picked that evokes Nazi imagery. I think it's possible to make that story. And I think that Brian and Megan are Aryan gods made incarnate. You know, we often talk on this show about who is the actual leader of Excalibur. Well, the leader of Lightning Force is Hopman England. Like, he is clearly in charge. And I think that you can have that story, and then you can have the story of, look, Kitty ends up in here as, you know, Holocaust survivor, because as Rachel tells her at the end, of course you would have. You would have had no other choice. It's not a failing. The story is trying to tell us it's not a failing of the Kitty character. It's not like she chose this. It's that she is a Holocaust victim, you know, Nazi Kitty is a Holocaust victim. And so this is just what she has become. And I think that that's a story that you can do. I think that you can tell that story of you have these perfect physical specimens of Brian and Megan, and they are in the leadership role. You have Kurt, the demon outsider, who we've put here on the second tier. And then you have the Jewish victim who they treat like a pet because that's the version of Nazi Nazism that, you know, that the narrative needs them to have. I guess it's just it makes me think, though, about how, again, Kitty is the representative of this real life holocaust Mm -hmm. and yet rachel's story involving a fictionalized holocaust is a lot more compelling i mean as travis was saying you know that is the story that you could have told with kitty here but we already did it with rachel yeah the other really important line of dialogue is when rachel says you'd be amazed how easily after a while horror becomes your natural state of being and butchery the norm i mean it's a chill in 2021 it's a very chilling sentence to read now and so once again rachel was the reason i was reading this book I mean, I like Rachel in that last scene, you know, like her combination of world weariness and sort of wisdom, I think is good. But I mean, Andrew, we haven't heard from you in a while. Do you have thoughts about this ending? Like, does it work for you? Do you think sort of any of the moral dilemmas are sort of teased out effectively in this conclusion? Uh, I think the, the the metaphorical element gets a little bit entangled in Kitty's um, heritage specifically. Um, is she the one who resists and who won't compromise because she is this this integrity character or because she has this specific um, lineage so that to me muddies the waters a little bit but i do like at the ending that they compromise and that that's this thing that they talk about you know they had to do this they let the nazis go in order to get you know callisto and Moira back but like everything we've been talking about today compromises how you get nazi excalibur in the first place so in that scene you're sort of seeing how that nazi excalibur came to be which I think is kind of compelling and it makes things nicely circular for me. That kind of blew my mind, Andrew. I was going to argue exactly the opposite thing that, you know, oh, they're doing the heroic thing because instead of punching the foe into unconsciousness, which is what the Nazis would do, they're working together and compromising. But you're exactly right that it is that darker meaning of compromise, isn't it? I can see what you're saying too, though. That works for me as well. I like your reading a lot better. It's a much better story. (laughs) And it's one that's understood. I think that, that Andrew's reading is what it's literally going for. 
in the you know the last panel of the next to last page and the first panel of the last page she's just so obviously upset by it she is a young jewish girl she did not see the holocaust but she has relatives who you know she would have had grandparents who would have known about it given when this was written right and so she is very much trying to epitomize the idea of no no you never you compromise with nazis this is a bad idea this will come back to bite us in the ass that's what she's trying to say here but in a book where normally we talk about you know this book is often set up to be 22 pages of story of which 12 of them are people talking andrew you always said walking through the park right and then like two pages of fighting we've given so much to the fight here and then we try to wrap up this this ethical moral dilemma in like four panels and it's it's hard it's hard and it's rushed and it doesn't i get that that's what kitty i I think andrew's right that's what kitty wants us to know that like compromising is how you get nazis in the first place but andrew had to add that like it's not on the page it's clunky it's clunky and it's hasty it's incomplete uh and it's dissatisfying as a resolution and a little bit contradicted by the fact that the the main fight scene is a guy in like a full-on imperial british costume punching another guy <laughs> you know what i mean like there, there's a lot of implicit politics in that and that we're supposed to as we talked about at the beginning of the pod supposed to invest in brian's heroism here i mean this is brian having his moment like of man i've been such a jerk and i know this because i'm fighting this nazi version of myself but actually i'm a really good guy and now i have to be all like rah rah nationalist hero brian like ooh. <laughs> Of course, he's in. He's not even in his regular Captain Britain costume. He's in, he's in his old Captain Britain costume, which is like a. And maybe this is intentional. Maybe that's why they had him change last issue because that is the costume that epitomizes that the United Kingdom is a imperial, you know, colonial force. Yep. That you know, I am being a national patriot by protecting colonialism from Nazism. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, we can note we can note that the attempt at irony there of having him be in the old costume that you know, similar to the what they did and back in classic spider-man from the 60s you know have him wear the costume that doesn't fit properly so he's inherently goofy while he's fighting right we get a little bit of his midriff exposed and we get him sort of not able to fight the way he wants to because he's wearing this ill-fitting costume and he's worried about his costume tearing apart and that he's gonna have to fight naked so you get that subversion of his power there and yet again like just not really handled very effectively yes and that too i just think that if they played into the metaphor if anybody had realized that wait a minute yes i am fighting the embodiment of nazidom but what am i you know like i am like if he literally had the wherewithal to have the thought of my entire role i am captain britain defender of the realm my role is to be the embodiment of colonialism that's what he is yeah yeah no unfortunately this is going to continue to be a very colonial very sort of white representation of british identity which is something that we haven't talked about on the pod before but it definitely is and i think it's definitely as we talk as we get to sort of into some of the captain britain core stuff i think is going to be a conversation that we're going to have again in terms of what is the idea of britain of the uk of whatever like being represented here through this idea of the captain britain core but can we talk a little bit about kitty and alistair since this is the (laughs) intro Introduction oh of, yeah like so this. we can end on something a little <laughs> bit lighter because unfortunately we're going to be talking about nazis again but yeah so kitty has her very intense crush on alistair that begins here like why is this here what is the kitty and alistair thing do any of us like this as a plot point for kitty i kind of do i, I, I oh, like really? the idea of her forming a crush <laughs> on someone who's not going to be with her ever 
uh, and having that awareness. I know the Colossus relationship sets a bad precedent for age and appropriateness. But you think she's aware? No. You think she's aware that he's never going to be with her? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On some level, maybe. I think she sees the way he looks at Rachel uh, and knows she's outclassed there. But no, I like the idea of her sort of growing up in that sense forming inappropriate crushes and not having them develop into problematic relationships. I have very mixed feelings about it because that is very true to the life of a girl about Kitty's age and especially I think it's a reflection of her character to have her have a crush on this like sort of cute nerdy guy too which is like so Kitty and so the kind of person that she would have a crush on if she's gonna have a crush on a boy but at the same time it does so many weird things in terms of it's used in a love triangle with her and Rachel in ways that negatively affect her friendship with Rachel, which, you know, you could go deep, deep queer coding on it and argue that Kitty's actually jealous of Alistair liking Rachel because Kitty wants to be with Rachel. I don't really think that's kind of written into the story in any kind of real way. I think that that would be a very fan in reading of what's going on here. But we're going to see in some later issues, you know, Kitty having thought bubbles where she's like, oh, Rachel, you cow. And she's so mad at her because of the Alistair thing. So I really don't like what it does to their relationship. It's believable. And yet we've talked so much about what's so important and beautiful and wonderful about Kitty and Rachel's bond and this is going to interfere with that in some significant ways. We'll probably talk about it more next week I'm sure because it's more forefront next week which is not a fighty book whereas this one it's just sort of a oh there's a boy here she's 15 14 whatever she's supposed to be girls have crushes on older boys when they're 14 15 um okay back to the nazi stuff i don't like it because it doesn't seem to me like the kind of boy that she would have a crush on only because it's not like she doesn't know other cute nerdy boys and again we've talked about this before i understand why andrew doesn't like the classes relationship but i also understand why kitty did kitty would not be into doug ramsey and she wasn't doug ramsey's a friend he's not the cooler older jock boy that she dreams about and this seems like they want him to be grown-up doug ramsey so kitty likes him because reasons and really it's because we want the love triangle with Rachel, which I don't think really worked later either. Yeah, we're going to talk about it, yeah, more as it kind of evolves, but I did want to bring it up since this is the first introduction of it here, and we can think too about how awkward it is at the center of this book about Nazis with all of these other horrible things going on. I mean, it's right between like two scenes involving like Nazi shadow cat, and it's like, okay, and then we have this little interlude with, with Alistair, which again, if we were talking about sort of a more finely crafted like Alan Davis drawn issue, we might actually be praising because we've been praising like sort of the genre bending so much and there's ways to do that effectively and there's ways to not do that effectively it's just it also would have been half the book it would yeah if if this were regularly it would have been 12 pages of alistair and kitty talking while he tries to wander through this magic gate to the native american girl i don't know I don't really have any comments on that. Yeah, Yeah. that's just a whole other thing that's thrown in there. Um, Final thoughts, Travis, I'll come to you first. Final thoughts about sort of the ethical dilemmas of this comic that you might want to comment on that we didn't get to. I don't know if I have any. I sort of made my best attempt to try to figure out what I thought Claremont was trying to accomplish in the Kitty-Rachel conversation and how I think in the end it's still dissatisfying and how the particular choice that were made in order to present us with this version, alternate universe version of Kitty is, I mean, look, you, you made the point that maybe they're not all silly Nazis, but the first thing they do to introduce us to alternate universe Shadowcat in the previous issue is have her go kick the puppy, right? She strangles Lockheed. 
you know, no matter how much it's like the most serious of all of them, it starts off not serious. And so I've tried my best. I don't know what else to offer. <laughs> well, you've done a fabulous job. I think we've done a fabulous job having a very intelligent conversation about a comic book that I don't think respected our intelligence as much as it should have. Anybody else? Final thoughts? Things that we should have talked about that didn't? Widget's in this more than he has been ever since it started, and it doesn't explain anything, so we're not going to either. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> There's like, even like a little editor's note that's like, hang in there, we're not going to explain it right now, and it's like, uh -huh. okay. And like, that kind of resonates with a letter I want to highlight before we're completely out of time. But I just um, love that that's become the conceit of our show. Is Yeah, yeah, There's we'll get to Widget eventually. <laughs> that's the <laughs> how about you andrew any final thoughts um maybe just re related to our conversation i i don't think the execution is here i think that's obvious but i do think excalibur is starting to become one of those books that swings hard and will happily do four bad issues if it leads to one great issue and i think that's a very doctor who thing we talked about mm -hmm. doctor who last issue it doesn't need a high batting percentage it's not aiming for that uh, it's trying to do stuff and when it fails it fails spectacularly uh, but when it succeeds sometimes it's worth it yeah and we're gonna get back to some better stories don't worry faithful listeners before we run out of time i wanted to return to a little spotlight on the sword strokes letters page which we have again this month so the letters in sword strokes this month or week in terms of the podcast are addressing excalibur number three so keep in mind this was the days in which you mailed your letter to marvel comics in the hope of it getting printed in the comic many of these readers are mailing their letters from the uk so we're always going to be a little bit behind with the letters page, but it's interesting seeing the letters kind of revisit some of the things that we've already talked about on the podcast. And the one that I was going to highlight today is from Malcolm Bourne in Manchester, England. And it's interesting because his letter identifies a number of the things that we talked about when we talked about Excalibur number three. He loves the brief fight with Juggernaut. He loves the interplay between the characters. And he brings up, and I'm just going to read a little part of the letter. It's surprising that the team is more concerned about the doppelgangers that Kurt and Kitty have met. I'm certainly curious, and it's odd that these experienced campaigners don't want to know about what's going on. But with the arcade and Inferno storyline lined up, I guess they'll have to wait a while. Maybe Widget has something to do with it. His alien world looks intriguing, and I hope it isn't forgotten in the rush. So, yeah, we already see the letter writers complaining a little bit about the slow pacing of Excalibur and the accumulation of mysteries, and why are we just moving past the fact that there are doppelgangers in the basement? Oh, well, in Inferno happened and Arcade happened and we'll hopefully get back to it at some point. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. Um, I guess we will wrap things up there. Um, Travis, is there anything that you would like to plug a final time for our listeners? Please plug your fabulous book again for our listeners. We'll link it in the show notes as well, but tell them about it another time. Thank you so much, Anna, for inviting me to be on Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow. And I'm really glad that I got to meet Mav here today. And uh, nice ho hopefully you. we can talk pro wrestling some more in the future. Thanks, uh, Andrew. Always enjoy uh, learning uh, X-Men lore from you. And I actually was wondering whether or not I should do another one of your uh, voiceover monologue things for the uh, yes. ra the, ra the Rachel <laughs> thought bubbles as she's going to attack Celine into a seven would be perfect. Yes. Um, 
So I'm, I'm giving that some thought. Superhero Ethics is my book. Uh, it's a, a, available where books are sold, plus on digital formats like Kindle. And uh, that's that's my book, Superhero Ethics. Thanks so much, Anna. Well, thank you so much, Travis. I really, really, really appreciated your voice on this pod. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 11, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 11, The Price, in which Nightcrawler learns something awful about himself, Kitty ends up naked in front of a crowd for the second time, and we prepare to launch to none other than the much-famed cross-time caper, perhaps Excalibur's definitive story arc. And we'll be joined by another stellar guest to help us make sense of it all. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another stupid if difficult conversation. Thank you, Travis, for lending us your ethical expertise and insight. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. That is it. <laughs> I mean, please continue if you want. <laughs>